Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Imagine this. You've just completed a 2.4-mile swim. You're now in the midst of a 112-mile bike ride. That precedes the final leg of your Ironman race, running the 26.2-mile marathon. When suddenly, like a flash, a nun, more than 80 years old, passes you. Well, this has been a common experience for competitors of Sister Madonna Buder, who's run more than 45 Ironmans since she began running at the age of 48. And if you think you're too old, too late, too inexperienced, too anything to embrace a new dream in your life, don't miss today's inspiring episode. Connect with your host, John O'Leary, on social media for daily inspiration and sign up to receive his inspirational emails at johnolearyinspires.com. If you haven't heard, review the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. This is the best way to make sure other people can find John's podcast and join the Live Inspired movement with us. Well, hello, my friends. This is John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to have you here joining us in the Live Inspired Movement. Well, today on our podcast, we have a remarkably impressive guest. This woman, our guest, has run, get ready for it, more than 45 Ironmen. She has run more than 300 triathlons. She's won her age group dozens and dozens of times. She's been featured on a Nike commercial been interviewed by news organizations around the world. She's an author. She has inspired millions. And oh yeah, she's actively living, vibrantly alive, and still running forward at age, drumroll please, 87, 88 this July. She's still running the good race. Today, my friends, we have the honor of introducing to you none other than the Iron Nun herself, Sister Booter. So, my friends, buckle up, get ready for the run of a lifetime. Open up your journals, your hearts, your minds as we bring into our program our newest friend, Sister Booter. Sister, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, I feel like I'm in St. Louis already. <laughs> and I am going to return there in May uh, for two functions for my uh, alma, mater, alma maters. Well, you know, it's funny because I've been following your work and your run from a distance, and I thought it was a distance. I knew you lived in the Washington area, and then in doing more research for our time together today, I realized you weren't born out west. You were born in the Midwest. Yeah, right there in St. Louis. Tell us about that. Well, I, you know, when you're born, you can't remember a whole lot. (laughs) (laughs) So I just know I was born there, but I grew up and had wonderful parents that were uh, both loving but disciplinarians as well. And my father was from the German extract, and he was a, a very good lawyer, taking after his father. And they had the Buter Building down there on 7th and Market which is unfortunately imploded, and 40 days after that, my 82-year-old father, who would not leave that office, they had to practically pick him up in his chair and Mm -hmm. move him so they could implode the building. He 
uh, died 40 days after that. So uh, on my mother's side, she was <clears throat> French and very, very creative, very um, spiritual, um, and was an actress. Yes. In fact, my father met her <laughs> on stage in the role of Shylock, and when he read the program and saw that Shylock was really a woman, he said, I have to meet her. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he met her, and he did. they married. How many How many siblings do you have, sister? Well, my uh, I was supposed to have been a boy, according to my grandfather, <laughs> because he needed to have that beauty line continued on. But I came out as a little girl, but followed by three brothers. You uh, grew up in the St. Louis area. My understanding is you grew up uh, somewhat well-to-do, but at age 14, you had a, you had a conversion or a calling. Well, I had been sent, according to my father, uh, to the public school, which we walked to at Glenridge. And at uh, age, well, it was a sixth grade uh, that we already were having, back then, believe it or not, girl-boy parties. Mm -hmm. And so neither of my parents had decided to tell me anything about how life proceeds. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, I'd come back from a party, and they'd say, what did you do? And i said, well, we spin the milk bottle. And they said, what's that? Oh, well, somebody's in the middle of a circle, and they spin the bottle blindfolded, and wherever the mouth of the bottle points, they get to get up and go kiss that person. Oh, they said. <laughs> And the next time we had a party in the evening out at Forest Park, and so they asked me what we did when I got home. Well, we played, um, um, it was the opposite of hide-and-go-seek, and that person who found in the first person got to kiss him. Oh, well, they heard the word kiss too much. Well, I grew up in the wrong era. Apparently, I should have grown up when you were growing up. I guess. Um, anyway, instead of explaining anything to me, they thought the solution was to send me to an all-girls school. Yes. And I had my choice between Mary Institute and uh, Visitation. Well, uh, my mother had baptized us in the hospital because my father uh, was a little reluctant due to my grandfather's uh, impression about Catholics. And so uh, we near weren't firmly baptized until my mother um, befriended this priest whom Daddy also liked, and so he allowed us to take instructions. And that, uh, my, both my grandmother and mother had been uh, students at Visitation Academy, and so they were very uh, uh, <laughs> fondly affected by their, their relationship with the nuns. So that's where I was sent to uh, get my formal instructions, and I was so impressed by their um, willingness to engage us that when I was offered the selection, even though the academy was like a dungeon inside with the long, dark corridors, mm -hmm. the warmth of the sisters is really what appealed to me. And then my seventh grade teacher um, took me under her wing because in 
the public school, we didn't have homework, no such thing. And we learned by the Dewey system, so when you were ready to absorb anything, you absorbed it. Well, uh, that was quite a shock, uh, going to a very disciplined academic (laughs) situation. And so she helped me, and because of her, um, I was uh, inspired that if a person can be make this much difference in somebody's life, that's what I want to do in dedicating my life in service. You entered at age 23, I believe. Yes. Uh, that day, do you remember it? Oh, <laughs> yes. <clears throat> Everybody in St. Louis was expecting me to announce my engagement. <laughs> and instead, <laughs> Is that right? Oh, yeah. I have about 25 on the string. <laughs> but one in particular, and this one was getting pretty close to home base. And um, so they thought this is what the party was going to be about. But no, instead, uh, I announced that I was going to enter the convent. Even my classmates were taken back. They had not a hunch. I understand and that your mom and dad weren't exactly thrilled at first. No, they weren't. I thought my mother and grandmother would be so pleased, uh-huh. but, you know, nobody was. And when it was time to enter, I felt so bad. Instead of joy, I felt like I was crushing the family. And that was very hard to take. And my grandfather declared that he would not come out and visit me at all. And we were only uh, allowed one visit a month for only an hour. Wow. So it was a very, very difficult period. And to see a man cry, and it's your own father, that's not easy to take. Did, did those tears of sorrow that Dad were crying, did they ever turn into tears of joy, and he, he uh, realized the gift of what you were saying yes to? Well... <laughs> Maybe years later when I became a triathlete. <laughs> and we're not <laughs> there yet. We, we're not there yet, orphan. sister. You're running too fast, lady. Yep. Well, <laughs> I fast-forwarded pretty quick, uh, and so now I'm in the convent. But if you want to take me back to my childhood, go right ahead. No, you know what? Let, let's do accelerate a little bit, because I think one of the most amazing things about your journey, and it's all pretty fantastic— is you're an incredible world-class athlete who did not know it until at least the age of 48. So I I just think it's wild to think that so many of our listeners have not yet had that birthday party yet. And yet for you, this is a defining moment in your life. This is an inflection point at age 48. That's when you put on your track shoes for the first time and start running. We invited this priest to come give us a conference, and the Sisters of the Good Shepherd had this cottage on the Oregon coast, where we were, and he came the night before, and we were just sitting around the table having an informal chat, and he started to talk about the uh, benefits of running. And actually, he was the, the nephew of our current bishop at that time in Spokane. Mm. And um, so when he expounded on Running, I said, you know, 
Uh, oh, when he said that you got a, uh, you peaked, emotional peak, I thought, well, aren't you supposed to do that in prayer? Yes. And uh, he finally, when he said it harmonizes mind, body, and soul, that's what caught my attention. Because uh, I don't think in terms of compartmentalization, Mm -hmm. but it's uh, a unity and so a wholeness. And so my sister-in-law had given me um, her little flimsy tennis shoes, that they, they called them in those days. And so I put those on and went out to the beach because when I objected uh, to Father, I said, I've been active all my life, but I have only run in competition mm-hmm. with uh, sports other sports, not just running for, for I need a, a reason to run. And he said, well, you know, um, you have an eddy, two eddies out there. If you run between either one of them, you'll get wet. And I'm thinking, well, so what? I walk between them all the time. But <clears throat> so when it got dark, I put on the tennis shoes, went out the side door, uh, came back in about five minutes after running between the two eddies, and who and was at the side of the door but Father when I came in. So he said, "What? where were you? I said, oh, out doing what you said. He said, well, um, uh, how often did you stop? Or how long have you been out there? I said, well, I've only been out here about five minutes. He said, and where would you go? I said, between those two eddies. And he said, well, how often did you stop? I said, I didn't. And he said, well, do you know how far that is? I said, yeah, it's about a half a mile, because I used to walk it all the time. And, and he said, well, you have got to continue on. You have at least five weeks of running before you realize what the runner's high is. Well, what is this now? 33 years yes. later, do I know what the runner's high is? <laughs> I know what the lows are for I sure. Bet you do. But uh, anyhow, five weeks later happened to be our famous Bloomsday race here in Spokane, which I hadn't known anything about. But when I went to this uh, lab to do my photographic uh, work, and do my own printing and so forth for my photography, I saw this poster on the window which advertised the second Bloomsday run and all these hordes of people yes. together. And I thought, that I, I, I couldn't get that picture out of my mind. I said, good night. It's hard enough to run by yourself, let alone elbowing your way through this horde of people. So when I got home, I got this phone call from my mother, who (laughs) was very gently trying to inform me that one of my brother's marriages was in jeopardy. And I listened, and when she finished, I said, Mommy, I'm really not surprised. And she said, What? You're not? I said, No. 
I've seen this coming for five years. She said, what? Well, but, but why? I said, well, you're not going to like this. I contribute that to an unacknowledged alcoholic problem. Mm. Then I said, oh, I'm going to do it. She said, what are you going to do? I said, well, there's this Bloomsday run, and I'm going to run it hoping that God will transfer my will to endure to my brother to give up his dependency on alcohol. Oh, she said, darling, but uh, how long is it? Uh, and then I gulped when I said it. <laughs> well, uh, <clears throat> it's a 8.2 miles. Yes, forever. <laughs> she said, oh, darling, you can't do that without any training. I said, well, how do I know unless I try? And she had no answer to that, and neither did I at the time. <laughs> Sister, do you remember that race? Were you able to complete it? Oh, yes, it? I remember it quite well. Yes? That, I mean, that's your first real race, correct? Yeah, but it was a beautiful um, May day without a cloud in the sky, and it started at noon. And it was about 70 degrees, just just every day that I was out there attempting it was the crucifixion. But the day itself was like the resurrection. Mm. And I had promised that I would run two miles, stop and walk maybe five minutes, and then start up. So I broke the run up that way. And there was a father and son uh, that I would pass occasionally, and the little boy turned to his father and said, haven't we seen her before? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so there was a lot of camaraderie in, toward the, the rear. And when we finally got to the finish line, it was staged uh, on the river outside the opera house. So I went down to the river and waded up to my knees in the cold water. To help relieve the pain uh, and the swelling. Yeah, yeah. Sister, so, why, when you are in such misery in race one and you barely come through that finish line and your knees are aching and your feet are blistering, why wake up the following day or a week later and do it again? Because when I got to the finish line, they were already passing out flyers for other <laughs> races. And of course, I got one and I said, well, well, I think there were maybe 300 women in my age group uh, who had known about all this before, and I think I came in about fourth. So I said, I never want to put my body through this again. And the only way not to is to keep on going. Hmm. I like that. The only way to not put yourself through this again is to just keep going. Yeah, the only way not to put my body right. through this again is to keep on going. You, from now on, your your body is ready if you keep it honed. Sister, you you have run at least forty five Ironmans. You did not even begin running at all until the age of forty, and I think you ran your first at fifty five. Well, that first uh, Ironman, yeah, I was 55. 
so uh, for those who don't know what an Ironman is, would you first begin by sharing what what are the three disciplines and how long are each? Well, when you hear the word Ironman, it, it's become a household topic these days. In those days, it was not. Nobody knew what an Ironman was. But the swim is first. It's a it's specific mileage when you hear Ironman. The swim is first, 2.4 miles. The biking is next, 112 miles. And then running a marathon after that, 26.2 miles. All run together. And the time never, the clock never stops. Right. So if you take time in transition, changing your clothing, whatever, that, that's where I'm the slowest. But the events itself, I could do very well. I understand the events are that you have a buzz in some regards the entire time, and certainly there are ups and downs. But I, I understand in some regard, I don't have the ability right now, but in some regard, how you could run this run and sprint this this race and uh, finish strong. What I don't get, sister, is how you train for the months and months leading up to it to prepare your body, your mind, your spirit for this. What what is the fuel? that you use to keep going? Well, when I was only running and was training just to do uh, my first marathon, um, there were really times where um, I'd have to break and walk, which I thought was anathema. When you get into a marathon, you just keep on, but in training... Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually fell uh, and skinned myself up pretty badly after when I was training to do uh, 20 miles. And I had to get myself home in a bloody mess mm. just by walking home. And then when I got myself uh, cleaned up and uh, sat by the window, I thought, you know, this is like Jesus carrying his cross, falling for us, and yet getting back up again. And I said, Jesus, if you could do that for us, I can do that for you. Sister, what, what do you think people receive from you getting back up and you racing forward? What, what, what is the, the value and the, the, the hope that you provide those who are watching and observing and pulling for you? I can't get inside another person and feel and think what they're thinking. You know, this is an individual thing. It People, whatever condition they're in, will feel or think the way they are by this so-called example. Mm-hmm. And um, I had to overcome a lot of... Uh, First of all, this was at a time when nuns were supposed to be nuns. And that meant, you know, for the most part, being on your knees. And all I was doing was skinning up my <laughs> knees. But it, when I qualified to do uh, the Boston Marathon, um, I thought, you know, I have got to let the bishop know because this is getting to get a little bit newsworthy, and if it flexes back on him, the, the, the media isn't going to know what order I belong to and get at my order. They're going to go to the bishop of the diocese. 
so I better get to him first. And so I had intended to do it uh, by taking pledges for MS. Mm -hmm. And I had the uh, MS people make up the flyers to get distributed and so forth so we could get the pledging going. And so I got an appointment with the bishop, and, you know, he was expecting some big, heavy thing to fall upon him, and he said... he. He looked at me straight in the eyes, Sister, what can I do for you? I said, well, you know, Father, I just want to do this marathon for a cause bigger than myself, and told him about it, the whole thing. And (laughs) he totally relaxed, leaned back in his chair, a little smile came up on his face, and he said, Sister, I wish some of my priests would do that. (laughs) So he never said, yes, go ahead. So I, I just took that as an okay. <laughs> right on. You, you you mentioned the Boston Marathon. How many of those have you run? Well, my eighth one was uh, the unfortunate 2013. Well, that's, I, I understood that you had run in that one. Yes. What, you're, you're 83 years old. So the, the very, sister, the very fact that you are out running <clears throat> is nothing short of being incredibly remarkable and inspirational. You're about a mile and a half away from the finish line. Take yeah. us from there. And just about at that point, a woman crosses from the sidewalk, smash in front of me, running across the street to another marshal, yelling, what's happened at the finish line? What's happened at the finish line? And I thought, well, I don't know what's going on. I better hurry up and get there. <laughs> so I picked up the pace and it got to where my, oh, in the process, I heard uh, a siren. I thought, well, that was behind me. And maybe there has been a traffic accident yes. and a car interfered with uh, the race. And it's not uncommon. Maybe an ambulance had to pick up a, an exhausted runner. So I didn't think anything further until I heard another one. And then a series of cars and and uh, fire engines started passing the very streets that we were running on. So then we had to be cordoned off onto the sidewalk. And people were coming the opposite direction from the finish line. As I was running toward it, it was like, you know, fish swimming upstream. This is crazy. What's going on? So when I do get to that intersection, I think it was mile 24, this man was saying, you can't go any further. You have to get away. Get away where? I mean, (laughs) this is crazy. And then I saw another, a, a block further down, another marshal. I said, pardon me, but what, oh, then I, I was saying to God, you know, I said, you mean you have let me run 24 miles for nothing? I was a little upset. Because <laughs> you had no idea what was really no going idea. on. Until I went to this marshal yes. and asked him what was going on. He said, well, he told me, and uh, I said, oh, my God, I am so sorry I, for saying that. 
all I could feel, I went absolutely numb. Dumb and numb. I, I had, it just wiped away all of my emotions. I, I have never, ever felt that strange in my life. Mm-hmm. But I thought the only thing I could feel was compassion for the whole race committee as if organization of a race of this momentous is bad enough without having yes. to control this un- unbelievable situation. So all I could feel was concern for how they were Sister, when, when, when explosions in life happen, whether it's in the Boston Marathon in 2013 or <clears throat> events that we all go through in our marriages or finances or our work life, how do you make sense out of that personally? How, how do you come to grips with the tragedies you've witnessed in your own life? Um, well, I've begun to realize that nothing happens without a reason. And I, I just simply say, God, I don't know why you're doing this, but you know. And I have learned that through the years, opposition is really handed to you as a strength conditioner. When you are opposed, and I tell this to people all the time in in, in jail, which I was Monday, <clears throat> I always let them know that when you meet up with opposition, either from a person or conditions, it's actually a backhanded compliment if coming from a person that there's something worthwhile in you to oppose. Mm -hmm. Then if it's a condition, then it's something that is training you for the future to be strong. So even though things seem upside down, crazy, you know it, you've been through it yourself vitally. People in your condition would, some of them have committed suicide. For you, the positive was gratitude life itself. Sister, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change gears just for a moment with you. And I, You are Exhibit A of something referred to as active aging. We all are aging, all of us. Help us understand how you choose to actively age. Uh, not to think of your age. Hmm. If you do, you're you, Comparisons are odious. I, like I see people in their fifties, thirty, forty years younger than I, and I'm saying, "Oh my gosh!" But for the grace of God, there go I. But how do you prevent this? Yes, circulate, keep going, whether it hurts or not. Just keep moving. How do you view time? Pardon? I know that's a broad question, but I'm, I'm curious how a woman who has run the good race for uh, 87 years and is continuing on, how, how do you view time today? How do I view time? Yes. As in passing? Uh, yeah, all of it. As in looking forward, <laughs> as in embracing the present, in the present, as in looking stand back. Stand by, it'll pass. 
everything's in passing. The only thing that doesn't change at all anymore is constant change. Mm. That's what every day. You wake up to a new day. Don't carry the baggage from the past. And what I love to do, which really, really helps me, is to watch little children, maybe out in the park, they run more than they walk. <laughs> right. They are always running, right. but they stop when they feel like it. They don't stress their body. They run with sheer glee. So I just think in my little mind, I'm that little kid running. <laughs> That's beautiful. How do you stay open to the possibility of life? And, and many of us sisters, certainly not you, but many of us, as we age, we become more and more and more closed off to new ideas, new things, new growth, new change. You, on the other hand, seem to keep running forward like a little child in a park. How, how do you stay open? I have to confess, I am not open to this technology that is enslaving us. We are going to lose our humanity by our own self-destruction mm-hmm. if this does not stop. And I'm adamant about it. Uh, it's out of control already. We have got to draw back. And you know what? I can't read God's mind, but I can pretend to, and I think that all of this natural phenomena that is so unpleasant is on the increase. And why? What have we done planet-wise to self-destruct? That's one thing. But so that we don't lose the emotions of being human and risk becoming slaves to our own invention... We have these catastrophes that draw out the humanness in us, wanting to be of service, to help each other. Even if we don't know the person, Mm. we want to be a first responder. I love that idea of being the first responder. Sister, on our show, we've had some phenomenal guests, although no one who has run either more races or run it better than you. And uh, for each of these guests, we've asked them seven questions as as we've wrapped up our time. It's called the Live Inspired Seven. And the very first question is, what is the best book, my friend, that you have ever read? I have to say, (laughs) and I've never read it, never read it from cover to cover, but the Bible. (laughs) I'm glad you answered that way. It seems appropriate in present company. Tomorrow, sister, you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at age 103, leaving you with millions and millions of dollars. What would you do with that newfound wealth? Well, it's very difficult because there's so many causes. How to divvy it up between all these causes I don't know. I'd have to employ somebody to do it for me. <laughs> Grab an employee with a wonderful heart and start distributing money accordingly. I think that's that's great advice. If your home, your convent, your apartment caught fire and all living things that you love are out and you have an opportunity to get one item, what would you run back in and grab? I suppose my birth certificate. <laughs> that's perfect. 
If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach on a gorgeous, perfect day and have a long conversation with anybody, living or dead, who would you want to have that visit with? Oh, I go straight to the source. F- finish the, the answer for me. I want well, to make sure we're on the same page. God himself. What would be your first question for God? Oh, there's so many questions I have for him now. The older I get, the more questions I have, not the answers. Yes. I'm going to say, God, I can't wait till I get there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Not yet, yeah. but I'm looking forward to it. What's the best advice you've ever received? Well, one that I think was instilled for me, instilled in me from the start, was probably uh, from my grandfather because I see myself living it out, uh, consciously or not. <clears throat> he said, "If there's anything worth doing, it's worth doing well." Mm. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Mm. Well, I was there once, and I can't remember what I told myself. (laughs) Just, uh, well, always consult with your maker. Mm. Sister Booter, it has been said that all great triathletes and nuns, and women, and leaders, and friends can have their lives summed up in one sentence. Sister Booter, how would you like your one sentence to read? Oh, sentence, not word. Oh. One sentence to sum up your life. How would you like that to read? In gratitude for all you have made, including me. Sister Booter, you are... A runner that we ought to imitate and uh, a lady who I think has an awful lot to teach us through your example, through your faith, through your love, through your race, through your love. I think your grandfather is proud of this little girl because anything worth doing is worth doing well. And you have run this race very, very, very well, my friend. Thank you. I don't realize it, but, you know, when you're on your own skin, you don't see yourself as others do. Well, I think when our friends from Nike see you for who you are and celebrate you for who we all could become more like, you've done something something super impressive. So I want to thank you for spending your time with us. I want to thank you for spending your life in service. And I want to thank you for the inspiration that you are. Well, thank you so much, John. (laughs) My friends, that was Sister Booter. This is John O'Leary. And today is your day. Run the good race and live inspired. Well, on the front of the interview, we said, if you think you are too old, too late, too inexperienced, too anything to fully embrace a new dream in your life, then you absolutely cannot miss today's inspiring episode. How amazing is it to think of Sister Madonna Booter picking up a pair of old tennis shoes at age 48 to complete more than 45 Ironmen and to run in more than 350 marathons since that time. All that since the age of 48. It's an incredible feat. Did Nike's Iron Nun inspire you to live into a dream that you thought had already passed you by? Well, in our show notes, I'll link to that Nike ad featuring Sister so you can get a little bit of a, a little bit more inspiration to get you started on living into your dream today. Just take one action. Just 
take one step in moving forward through this race in life. It's not about when you start. It's about having the courage and the audacity to begin, just to begin. Schedule one appointment, whatever that one step is in your life to make it happen today, my friends, make it happen. Be like Sister Booter. Picture yourself like a little child running on the playground with energy and excitement for all that life has to offer within your days, today, and every day. My friends, check out the Nike ad of Sister Booter and all of my takeaways from today's episode by visiting my show notes at www.johnolearyinspires.com. Again, it's johnolearyinspires.com. And if you have not yet, take a moment right now, do it today, review this podcast wherever you are listening to it. Please encourage your friends to listen in too. And as always, I'll join you again with a new episode next week on Thursday. New friend, new inspiration, new opportunity for us to begin the race of our lives. So my friends, for this time and until next time, this is your day. Live Inspired.